Hey everybody, welcome to What's Up with Pastor Chuck. And this is a very special day because it is Chris Banning's birthday. Uh, Chris is behind the scenes and he does everything he can not to be on camera. But I want to do a big shout out. Happy birthday, Chris. Man, you are such a blessing to our church, such a blessing in my life. Uh, so many good things happens because of Chris and how gifted and how talented he is. If you want to know what Chris looks like, go to my Instagram account. I posted a picture of him and he didn't know I took it. <laughs> <laughs> right, Tracy? <laughs> so I did it. So anyway, uh, uh, today's going to be a really good podcast. I really know because you need to hear this. You need to hear this. Uh, you individually need it. If you're single, you really, really need this. Uh, if you're married and have kids, your kids need this. So you need it so you can be a part of that. But before I dig into that today, I want to tell you, I don't know if you can tell, Marlon's not with us today. Uh, Marlon, I think the rapture happened and he's the only Christian. Uh, who went, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but Marlon, man, uh, even though you're, I heard around here somewhere, big shout out to you. But today we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence. Uh, when I was at um, Liberty and at also Cal Baptist, I actually had to take a, an emotional intelligence test. Question is, did I pass? <laughs> That's, oh, okay. Uh, put it in the chat. What do you think? But anyway, um, what I want you to know is emotional intelligence is so important. EQ trumps IQ. EQ is emotional intelligence. It trumps IQ every single time. And there are studies out that show that. It is not just uh, opinion. Uh, people with high EQ tend to do really, really well in life and in business and in most every other facet of their life. They always rate their happiness higher. Uh, which I think is interesting based on the idea they have better relationships and they are more effective in living out their life purpose. Um, I am super excited because when I wanted to hire a brand new executive pastor, uh, we began to do a nationwide search. And I talked to a woman who worked for Vanderblumen, which is the, one of the top search firms in the in the country. Uh, she was not, by the way, we didn't hire Vanderblumen. Uh, that's a, never mind. That's an EQ moment. But um, I asked her about the person who's with us today, Galen Thomas. And I said, hey, tell me his strength. And, and right at the very top of everything she said, she goes, he's very, very high in EQ. He's very high in EQ. And so when we hired Galen, he came in and there was no doubt he lived that out. So I thought I needed to have you hear from somebody who I believe lives out what it means to have high EQ. So welcome today, Pastor Galen Thomas. Hey, thanks, Chuck. It is awesome to be here, and that's high praise. I appreciate those compliments. Thanks. Uh, it's been great being here, and so nice to know Tammy thought that of me. <laughs> yeah, Tammy is who said that. And you've been with us now coming up on five years. Four, five and a half years. Okay. In fact, you better get this straight because you're honoring me next Monday. Okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah Galen gave me the task. He assigned me to honor him. <laughs> no, but you know what? Um, I am fortunate enough in my life to have you in my life with mm. high EQ. Tracy, by the way, has really high EQ also. Uh, and to have people who I work with, uh, Lauren, you do too. Uh, and have people I work with, that's so important that I've started looking for that in everything we do. But I know when you came here, not to diss the past, mm. but we were not high in EQ in our culture here at 
our church. And you began to work on that. Um, before we get to that, though, I'm going to ask you about that. Mm-hmm. Would you define EQ for everybody in a way that would be meaningful? Yeah, emotional intelligence really means that you have managed to figure out how to be self-aware, first of all, on one side of the, the ledger, self-aware, and then managing yourself. And then on the other side, it's relational awareness and social uh, management. So relational and uh, social, and then personal and other awareness. So I, if I'm self-aware and I can manage what's going on in me, or if I'm socially aware and can manage the relationships in my social network and that re- without being manipulative, of course, then that constitutes emotional intelligence. Okay, yeah. You know, um, I guess one of the questions I, I, that hit me just as you're saying that is, mm. how would you uh, uh, link emotional intelligence and maturity? Uh, I think they're very tightly made. I, I often talk about it as emotional maturity, that the ability to be very aware of what I'm dealing with. And that isn't, so it's very different than denial. So some people are good at experiencing something, but stuffing it and, you know, interacting uh, apart from what they're feeling, but they're stuffing it. They're not coping or dealing with it. They're not addressing it. They're not being real with it. It's, it's inauthentic. So somebody with high uh, emotional intelligence is able to be aware that uh, certain triggers might interact with our personalities or our experiences and evoke inside of us energy that if vectored improperly or immaturely, to your point, uh, can really do damage. We can hurt other people severely with our words, our actions, even our nonverbals. Yeah, yeah. You know what's so funny? Because you said on nonverbal, and I brought this up more than once and probably will bring it up a lot, is that Tracy, one of the most amazing things about Mm -hmm. her is her ability to mirror. And it just shows she has empathy. It shows she's tuned in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I so value that. I value that. And and there's moments where I'll want to know how things are going, and I'll look over at her to see what's going on. Because of the nonverbal part of her emotional intelligence. And uh, I know sometimes I'll watch you. Uh, We'll be in even a very tense situation. You'll on purpose almost mentally take a step back. It's not that you're not mirroring, but it's, I can tell you're being contemplative. Which, so what you're saying to me now is you're probably doing self-management. Yeah, I'm working on it. So I'm aware that I'm energized. And to your point, now I'm doing something with it that's productive. You know, I'm, I'm not saying something. That is sometimes the most productive thing you can do is not do something, say or act, right? So um, oftentimes I, I have a reaction in, internally, and I'm aware of that. But I'm also aware that I don't have the whole picture many of the time. So I will continue to ask questions. I'll continue to try to surface things so that empathy can engage. And all of a sudden, once I have a degree of awareness on why somebody might be interacting the way they are, what's driving their, you know, maybe less than optimal or maybe really good response. Now I'm aware of what's going on. You said empathy. That's the primary symptom in a positive sense of social awareness. Mm Social, which leads to the relational management. Now I can, I can interact effectively with somebody, but I have to have awareness, which you know, is empathy. If I can discern in you, you've got some energy there. You've got your pain. You're in pain or your, your anger is driven from an experience. It's not really a personal thing. You're just angry and I'm here. You know? So you say something and uh, I don't take it to heart. Uh, even though inside I want to well up and I want to defend myself, I become aware that this isn't really what's happening. That in fact... You're hurting, and so you're going to say or do something, and I don't have to respond to it. I can have empathy and think to myself, wow, I might do the very same thing if I were feeling what he's feeling. That's what empathy is. Yeah, you know, and I want to say this, that empathy and sympathy are different. 
Uh, sympathy is not bad. Sometimes it's almost like, no, you got to be empathetic. Now, they're both good, mm-hmm. but um, talk about the difference between empathy and sympathy. So as I understand it, right, and I invite your uh, redirection on this, but empathy, I'm able to actually enter into what you're experiencing. I'm, I can identify with it. I might even be able to reach into my past or my history and find examples when I felt the same way. And so I don't hold that against you because it's it would be normal. You know, for somebody to experience what you're experiencing and not have some kind of reaction is actually more abnormal. <laughs> you know, that's that gets to sociopathic at some point there where you're stuffing and, and you know, not, yeah. not responding. Or, um, so, yeah, it, I think it is more uh, productive and helpful that way. Yeah, and you know one of the things, Galen, I think about is when it, when it comes to emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. we know that, that it's in human nature to minimize the things that I do that are wrong, but to maximize the very same thing you do. So in other words, we could do the exact same thing, and mm-hmm. I'll minimize my doing it and maximize your doing it, which happens in a lot of marriages in a bad way, by the way, yeah. where one spouse minimizes their very same behavior the other spouse does. But when I practice emotional mm-hmm. intelligence... And, I, and, and in the midst of that is empathy, then I'm not going to do that, right? Yeah, because I'm identifying with you. I'm, I'm actually feeling degrees of compassion. I'm actually want, I'm coming toward you, not being repelled by you when, I, when I'm in, in an empathetic posture. Otherwise, you know, I'm sifting. I'm deciding. I'm judging, frankly. If I'm not in an... And this is me. This is confession time. If I am working through uh, my own feelings and I don't choose empathy, I can move very quickly to judgment. You should or should not be feeling those things. Based on what? Well, based on what I think I would feel or do if I were in the same situation. That's exactly the opposite of empathy. So I tend to judgment and have learned to be more empathetic. And God has also brought me through some pretty tough things in life, like many of us. It's not like I'm unique, but those harder things evoke and teach uh, and allow for empathy. I now, my ministry is far broader and my ability to be effective far broader than what, you know, I, I came out of school with because of my life experiences. And that just lets me be more empathetic. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because you, you're right. It makes you better. Mm-hmm. It makes you, it, well, actually it can make you better if you mm-hmm. choose to let God use it that way. But then I think about the verse in 2 Corinthians that I th- actually think about all the time, mm-hmm. that we comfort others with the same comfort with which we have been comforted by God. And the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort comes and comforts us. So I'm supposed to comfort other people. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of wild to think about out of my pain and out of an, an awareness of all the times God's yes. comforted me and others have comforted me. Absolutely right. And I've, I, we talk about that phrase, that uh, passage there in 2 Corinthians when we talk about the healed healer. And I've even talked and done some training about how we're actually not healed, we're just further. So I dropped the bar a little bit. You don't have to be healed, like completely healed, done with your healing in order to be engaged in someone else's healing. You just have to maybe be further. And so I've introduced this idea that even if you're still in the midst of your own healing, you can be far enough along to be able to impart back any wisdom that God might have given in that time. So I th- what I'm really saying is I think anybody can be a healed healer. Anyone can be somebody who imparts the comfort God has given to them without having to reach some level of perfection. Which, by the way, you know, in Romans 8, it says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and live your life according to his purpose. Mm -hmm. And one of the things God causes good to come is some of the greatest heartbreak you've had. Mm -hmm. Now you can take that and not forget it. 
Uh, not let it define or dominate you, but you can take that and now use that as a gift to comfort someone else. Um, I know you're, you're without a doubt, one of the greatest heartbreaks you've ever experienced is the loss of uh, your uh, child. Yes. Is that right? Yes. My firstborn son was born with a, a terrible inborn error of metabolism, a metabolic disease that neither his mom nor I knew we had genes for. We, it hadn't manifested in either of our families. And so <laughs> I was 26 years old. I had my first child, and I didn't know what I was doing. And his mom didn't know either, and we were first-time parents, and uh, he got progressively sicker, and we kept going to people to say, is he okay? What's, what's going on here? He won't latch. He won't feed. He won't this or that. He's fussy. On. Finally, he went into respiratory failure, and we rushed in the middle of the night to the ER, and you know they took one look and went into frenzy mode, which scared the heck out of me, as you can imagine, yeah. when someone who knows what they're doing is afraid, that tells you, you know, you're not in a good spot. And uh, he ended up never leaving the hospital. He suffered for 15 days. They were able to diagnose, and we learned what we were dealing with, but not in time to heal him. So, you know, firstborn passed on. And I remember a moment at church, sadly, where um, we were standing there, and someone walked up, you know, with the look, and, you know, the look of compassion and pain and looked in our eyes and just said, oh, I, I was so, I'm sorry to hear about your, your son. And, and we're like, yeah, thanks. And she said, well, at least you have, she had turned to my wife and said, at least you have a husband. I don't even have that. And made it all about herself. Yeah. You know, rather than engaging in my own pain and emptying yourself like Philippians 2 tells us, which is kind of a life verse for me now. You know, don't, don't consider yourself more important than others. Consider and consider others' needs right up there with your own. Um, so that was an example, yeah. Um, and, and then I entered into a community that I didn't know existed, I, the community of people who've suffered loss. And then we suffered mi several miscarriages. And there was another community where I had an opportunity to encourage and minister as I was not much further along. And later on, that marriage ended up dying and ending. And so there's another community of you know, single parents and or divorced people, remarried, blended families. I mean, my scope of ministry is yeah, significantly yeah. wider now than it was. So to your point, God can turn the difficulty and redeem it. I tell people, I feel like God has redeemed so many hard things, um, not in a vacuum, because I'm not sure that would be a complete redemption, like if it's just me and my home. I see the redemption in that now I get to minister through that to people who are you know, probably in more, more of a crisis than I am these days. Yeah. What was your son's name? Brayden Michael. Brayden Michael Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the things I think about for Brayden and I know, cause mm -hmm. I, you know, you and I've been together now for years mm -hmm. is that when someone is in pain, someone's hurting, you're very quick to have your heart go out to them. And I think that's, uh, um, a tribute to Brayden, a tribute to the gift he gave, mm -hmm. uh, that God gave you in him. I um, agree. And I feel like that any loss we have isn't, it becomes, it's, it's not the loss isn't there, the pain's not there. Because mm -hmm. God doesn't want that. He created us to hurt. He created us to feel. Mm -hmm. He created us to have joy too, but, but he created the feeling. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a way that you identify. And I bet you have to identify with God's pain of Jesus on the cross. Yeah, I mean, that whole scene play out. You know, he's lost a, f a father who's lost a son. Mm -hmm. I can talk to another father who's lost a son, obviously not as a peer. But having a sense of what that must have felt like for him and having had an eternal relationship, you know, that's 
really true. But that, that redemption is crucial to me. And uh, there's a fine line to walk. If, if, and I invite everybody in, in this, who's viewing this podcast to say, you have a story and God has interacted with you in it to some degree. There's the opportunity for that to become a redeeming thing and to offer you an opportunity to have a ministry. You don't have to be a paid pastor to have a ministry. I know you know that. Yeah. We're all priests. Those of us who love Jesus, we can have ministry. And if, if we're in touch with that, if we're aware that we have this opportunity, we can actually go into it. But the danger is that we would lead with the fix. Oh, yeah. You know, it yeah. took me, I don't know how many years, a long, long time to distill out and be refined down to, you know, where I am that's just took, you can't substitute time. So for, if I had pretended to know all these things early, I think I could have come off as insincere or inauthentic, certainly not empathetic because I would have been more about fixing you. In fact, I have discovered, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think uh, most of us are so averse to pain that we default to a fixing posture because I want to fix your pain because your pain makes me uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Your yeah. pain is discom- you know, disconcerting to me, and I don't like being around it, so I will try to fix you to solve my problem, <laughs> not yours. And that is not empathy. That's not emotional intelligence. That's not the healed healer of 2 Corinthians 1. You've got to experience empathy first. You know what I think about? I think about, I'm sorry I'm laughing, but I, yeah. I'm going to get unemotionally tied. I don't know. I think about Job's friends <laughs> who came uh, to be with him, and mm-hmm. at first they got it right. They just sat there. They just sat quiet. They sat with him in his pain. They sat there caring, and then it all ended when they opened their mouths. Yeah. <laughs> they go to fix-it mode, didn't they? Yeah, you know, exactly. Must, there must be saying. something wrong. Let's fix it so you can get you out of this pain so I don't have to sit here anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that is so what you're saying. Now, here's the thing. Okay, so emotional intelligence comes by being empathetic, and it comes also from being self-aware. And then also taking our own pain and allowing that to be something we use to care for other people and comfort them. So we know all those things are there. So how do you think it's a, is the best way for someone to grow their emotional intelligence? Because we can't. We can actually grow. We can get better. We can be better at it. Well, what would you say? Yeah, I- there's no doubt about it. I think unlike IQ, which many people say you can't budge, or more recently some people say you can nudge, you know, uh, single-digit yeah. points maybe. But emotional intelligence is absolutely something that can be acquired or enhanced. I think the first step is the hardest step, and that is a person would have to want to. And yeah. I encountered, frankly, too many people who are pretty content with their degree of emotional intelligence. They're pretty content with their degree of empathy, with their degree of ministry, and are content to sit on that and not really progress. Because it is, it is a difficult journey to move past where you are. So start, first step is, do you have the desire? Do you have what it takes internally to say, I'm willing to do the work? If the answer to that is yes, and hopefully it is, the answer to that is uh, after you move from, you have to identify (laughs) what's wrong. So there's an assessment step. You mentioned an assessment on emotional intelligence. I also took one, and those are really helpful. But the greatest assessment is the people who know you well. Yeah. So a lot of people will employ a a 360 at work, maybe a 360-degree evaluation. So someone who supervises you, someone who you lead, and then your peers will speak in, sometimes anonymously, to what it's like to work with you. So that's kind of a more formal approach. But... A lot of us have good enough friends or even family members we can step up to and say, hey, you know, I need to grow in an area. I recognize I have a bit of a gap and I'm going to need, you know, third party perspective. 
because by definition, it's a blind spot. I need your engagement mm-hmm. to help me see yeah. what I don't see. And you've talked about that a lot. So second step then is getting the candid inputs and feedback so that I can get in touch with reality. Third step is isolating or focusing on one or more of those things. I would say one, because this is heavy lifting. And I'd say, pick one of those things that you're getting in terms of feedback and say, that's the thing I want to really tackle. And there are professional resources, there are counselors or therapists, pastors. Uh, There are lots of, uh, I'm looking at a bookshelf, there's lots of books, podcasts, there's plenty of, of information and material out there for someone who's willing and has some focus. So willing, focus, and then engaging. I'm actually going to take this on and I'm going to do the work. I have to practice it. Practice again and again and again. And Dr. Leaf, right, is the gal that we Uh we had, a brilliant neuroscientist and a doctor of neuroscience. And uh, and you have talked about this quite a bit. Our brains are actually able to be retrained. And that's the spirit, I think, of Romans 12. We have the ability to train our minds differently. You've You've preached about that. Go find it in the archive, by the way. Um, I would tell you that that's essential. Uh, Practicing it again and again, trying again and again, asking for candid feedback. Was this any better? Having accountability. When you see this, not if, (laughs) because you will. When you see this activity in me or this response in me, please call me aside, you know, uh, bring it to my awareness so that I can find it. And the, the time gap between when it's happening and when I get the feedback, really important. If you can get that within minutes or even in real time, if it's a small enough and safe enough space, you can make course correction, retrain the brain so much faster. If someone's batching feedback and then giving it to you once a month or something, some you know irregular interval, it's really hard to be emotionally present with that moment when you were in a bad spot. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? You started out with you got to be aware of where you're uh, not as strong as you could mm-hmm. be or should be. And uh, it doesn't start by getting down on yourself. That awareness mm-hmm. is how you can build your way out of it. But it's interesting. I feel for me, and I think for you and others, when we are aware, that's like more than 50% of the battle. Now it's like, oh, this is where I could do better. And by the way, I think that's how you would approach it. I can do better, mm-hmm. therefore, and you can, therefore I'm going to work on it. And you get the accountability. I like that tension. It is not something you're going to solve. It's not a box you can check. I'm now no longer struggling with this thing. It minimizes. It's incremental progress. And that's what I think is most exciting. I don't have to forklift, upgrade myself you know, to some unattainable level. It really is a ramp. And the slope is even somewhat gradual. And not only that, but God by his spirit is for us, right? Yeah, yeah. We got the Holy Spirit who's transforming. We've got Jesus who wants, or the Spirit who wants to conform us into his image and is actively doing that to the degree that we make ourselves available. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm available and open postured to God, he can do a lot more work than if I'm closed or resistant. And so choice and then awareness, absolutely crucial before getting to actual, you know, identifying a thing and then practicing yeah. Now, you know me pretty well, and you know I do not like conflict, and I don't like pain, which is really interesting since God called me into counseling where you sit with people in pain. And, and engage in conflict. Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah, engage in conflict. Um, but you know what's interesting is when that emotional intelligence thing came to me, when the whole idea you need to grow in it, 
I didn't look forward to conflict, but when it started to happen, I would always in my mind go, this is a chance to grow. Mm-hmm. This is a chance to be better. This is a chance to calm myself and, and, and to try to use better words. Try to be, and I, I talk mm-hmm. this phrase all the time, curious, not furious. Right. Um, and I, that has, I've been changing. I know I've changed um, in that. Uh, and I affirm that, by the way. That is not just a sense of yours. This has been great growth area of yours, and I commend you. You inspire me, frankly, to take on more things, you know, that I'm not quite there yet. Well, yeah, because you've watched over the years how I handle conflict today than five years ago, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Significantly, I mean, significantly better to your credit. Yeah. And the, some of the danger mm-hmm. sometimes comes when, by the way, mm-hmm. um, I'm in, overall, I'm in a position of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have power or influence over people. Mm-hmm. But that can be so misused if you're not aware of it. And so when I think about a parent who has, in reality, almost all the power, mm-hmm. And if they're not emotionally intelligent, what they can do to their child. Um, and I know you've got a heart to, have, to say to a parent, hey, think about that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's crucial. When your parents, so I've got four kids. I had, you know, pick up where I left off. I did lose my firstborn. My nextborn was born with the same disease and suffered for four years. Um, though because of the diagnosis, we saved, God saved her through my firstborn's diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Three more kids after that. None of them impacted or affected by that disease. So, um, yeah, four kids on earth, (laughs) four kids in heaven, including miscarriages. And I watch um, parents um, who are not managing what they're working through inside, especially in this season. And and the proximity that COVID has forced on us all. We've got kids now, you know, schooling at home in proximity. You've got parents who got the break from the dynamics of the family Uh, either because the kids went away to school or the parent maybe went to a workplace. You know, so there was a a proximity gap, which allowed everyone to take a deep breath, and then you come back together in the evening, and it was always a little better. But when we're forced into proximity without much break, very little social interaction, many people choosing not to associate in relationships that used to bring and give life, and now they're gone. You know, people are so depleted. What does that become? That becomes... You know, anger and angst and frustration and anxiety, and then the dog gets kicked, and then the kids get yelled at, and unfortunately, we're seeing statistics rise on child abuse. Uh, so, to your point, and uh, it's it's worse now than a year ago before COVID. Yeah, I um, I, I think all of us have to get more and more yeah. concerned about what's going on when people are in isolation, and mm-hmm. and um, in some ways, I almost picture. Um, Gollum, is that right, you guys? Gollum, yeah, from Lord you know, of the Rings. Yeah, when he was in isolation and living in the darkness, mm-hmm. he shriveled into something not even human. Mm-hmm. And so the reality is, I think all of us in our soul, in our emotions, yeah. that can happen to us. And I don't know, I think emotional intelligence, I'm processing. Mm-hmm. So tell me what you think. Yeah. It's almost like a muscle. So if you're not using it, you'll shrivel, right? I would think so, yeah. I think uh, that the stronger you get, it stems from the, the use of your learning. And I think the emotionally intelligent get to a place where they're actually seeking opportunities to express empathy, to help others. Larry Crabb talks about that in a Christian dynamic. So in a Christian dynamic, uh, Larry Crabb, a very famous and biblically oriented uh, Christian psychologist, talks about how important it is for us to speak from a heart of love and other-centered, authentic, transparent love to a heart of fear that we exist in a superficial community. We have shells around us Mm -hmm. that we hide behind and encase ourselves in to protect ourselves. So we have, you know, conversations that have no depth or meaning. 
cliche you've talked about. Get away from cliche. Well, cliche is the norm in the superficial community, fear to fear. When a Christian can shed, or a person in general, but especially a Christian can shed that shell and allow a heart of love, which is you know, other-centered and being constantly transformed, empathy-driven, others can speak to that heart of fear that belong, that somebody else is dealing with. That's when what he says is encouragement happens. That's when the passage on let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is proper for edification according to the need of the moment. Yeah. How do you know the need? You have to be empathetic. You have to have a degree of emotional intelligence to know what the need of the moment is so you can respond with an edifying word. And the psalmist says, you know, like an apple of gold in a setting of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstance. So we would argue, yeah, from a heart of love that's willing to take a risk and step into it to a heart of fear that's desperate and hopeful that somebody will be able to pierce the shell. And that's where real ministry takes place. And that's, that's a picture of, you know, of emotional intelligence. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think that so is. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very accurately uh, is a big part of it. Well, one of the things that I know we love about our Crossroads Christian School is that we actually have, as a part of our educational system, teaching children and then uh, junior hires and then high school students how to have better emotional intelligence. Isn't that right? Yes, and my kids are both in the school. As you know, I've got an 8th grader and a 10th grader, and they do project work in our school that forces proximity. It forces interaction. They have a goal to work toward. It's a project that has a goal and an expectation. It's got a timeline, so that's turning up the heat a little bit, you know, to bring more tense situation, I guess, if you're not managing it well. And the kids have to learn how to interact with one another with some degree of stress because you've got a deadline and expectations and also how to interact when you don't feel like your expectations are being met or when you think somebody else isn't fulfilling their responsibility. That conversation is hard for grown-ups. It's hard to hire people in, you know, who are adults, uh-huh. 20, 30, 40, some odd year olds who, who can effectively interact with somebody who is not meeting expectations. And our kids at 14 and 16 are learning how to do that imperfectly. You know, they've got a ways to go. But what a great thing. Can you imagine starting some of the skill sets that it took us decades to get to? Can you imagine starting that when you're a teenager? Yeah, see, what I love about that is I not only, by the way, I want to rave about our school, uh, but whenever a student goes all the way through our school from preschool all the way through, they will definitely have higher emotional intelligence than if they had been in another setting. Definitely. Now, if they really go with this, if they work hard, they'll have very high emotional intelligence. Yeah. Plus, they'll have a higher education. So when they graduate, they're emotionally intelligent. They actually are further ahead academically, mm-hmm. some of whom have, what is it, two years of college? Year? Two, up to two years up of college. Up to two years of college done. Yeah. And so we end up putting them in a game-changing situation. But by the way, you guys got to hear this. So when Dr. Smith, who was the head of our school, was telling me about this whole way of doing education that is so biblical and so emotionally intelligent, Um, She talked about teaching our kids conflict resolution. And Galen, you already know this. So I said to her, so do you have to put them in situations where they're having to interact with conflict so that you can help them? And she said, oh, no. They find conflict all on their own. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to construct that. Yeah, Yeah. but our our facilitators... Mm -hmm. 
they watch for it on purpose yep. because we can help. By the way, I think on staff, I've tried to do that more too. Have you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, always trying to direct one staff person to another staff person, especially if it's personal. You know, if it becomes at some point work-related, then we do need to step in and try to resolve things too. And I know you know that uh, there are times, and very appropriate times, where a three-person conversation needs to happen. But I know we initially tried mm-hmm. to keep it at the two-person by the way, it's not just on staff. Uh, Peter Drucker one time said one of the hardest jobs in all the United States is to be the president of a university, uh, a mm-hmm. public university where you are answerable to the public, or the head of a hospital where you're dealing with people's pain. Or he said the pastor of a very large church where you have thousands of people who have issues. <laughs> that was Drucker, not me. Um, but but you know what is uh, very often I'll have uh, different people on staff. You and you will have different people on our staff. And I know one of the things I've learned to do because I I wasn't good at this before is whenever they have to deal with someone in our church about a conflict, I used to want to run gun, run and help them. Mm. And I don't do that anymore. And by the way, it's not because I'm afraid. It's because I want the best for them. So I have them mm-hmm. go in, deal with the conflict, yeah. and uh, usually they come out better. I often respond to someone who comes with an interpersonal issue, and I, you know, it gets a little grayer when there's a work thing in there also. Uh-huh. But if it's interpersonal and someone comes to me, well, you know, so-and-so did thus and such, and my response to them, well, how did they respond when you talk to them about it? And I mean, I stop and stare. And it gets awkward and silent. And I said, oh, you, you did talk to him about it, right? Well, no. I said, okay, well, let me know how that goes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and their eyes get real big and they walk out yeah, feeling but wait, like, I, but I, I wanted you to do it. Yeah. Or even sometimes I'll even say, that's okay, I understand that. I'll ask you next Thursday how it went. Yeah. Look forward to talking to you about it. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes that stifles you know, because people don't want to, they're not going to go on their own sometimes. They're just not courageous enough to do that, which becomes an employment issue, by the way. That's a culture destroyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the absence of conflict, so many people have written about it, countless people have written about it. The absence of productive conflict is the death of a culture and certainly um, not going to be very productive. You're not going to get what you're outcome-oriented. You're not going to achieve what you need to achieve. Yeah, oh, it's the death of a relationship, whether it's mm-hmm. friendship, a professional relationship, marriage, parent and child. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it really is. It's not our goal in life is not to have an absence of conflict because no. where there's great passion, there's great conflict. Uh, it's to have healthy conflict. I think you have to be in total isolation in order to be uh, conflict free. And that isn't healthy for sure, as COVID is showing. And so I know that that's really a, a tough and hard thing. People need to be uh, expecting that there's going to be conflict and preparing how will I handle it versus avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. Mm-hmm. And high emotional intelligence, growing that will mm-hmm. make you better at conflict, which will make you better at life, which will make you more in touch with the heart of God. Because you know? you're, you're really in touch with what others want and need. You are really trying to better somebody else. It's a posture of love. And the expression of love is your betterment, which means I would only have this conversation if I were convinced that you're going to be, be better for it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do this to hurt you. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do this to, to bring about some kind of punishment and feel better about, you know, phew, I got that off my chest. That's total openness when we want total commitment. And there's the, a very significant difference. Total openness, I'll destroy you. But I told you the truth, mm-hmm. but I destroyed you. Yeah. Total commitment chooses. 
and exercises emotional intelligence and looks for the opportunity to say the right thing in the right moment for the other person's benefit. Yeah, Proverbs 3.3 3 talks about, you know, having truth and kindness. It says, mm-hmm. uh, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Never, ever let truth and kindness leave you. So it's both mm-hmm. truth and kindness, kindness and truth. So. Yeah, hey, I think a lot of, oh, sure. No, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, a lot of people, I think, feel great about how truthful and honest they are. You know, but you look around and there, there are bodies everywhere. Yeah. But, I'm, but I'm honest. Yeah, or the danger is I'm very, very kind. No, 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 you're nice, but not telling the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's not loving. <laughs> yeah, that's too too true. So anyway, thanks for being here. Fun. Great yeah. to be here. Yeah, we're probably going to talk about this more because even though this is the leadership section, we're going to go into relationships next. And so everybody needs to know that we're doing a change next week in the topic for what's up with Pastor Chuck. And what's up with Pastor Chuck is what's up and how can I have better relationships? Uh, That can include being single, it's friendships, it's romantic relationships, it's parent to child, it's marriage. I actually, uh, we talked to Marlon, who's not here, uh, but he and his fiance are going to be on together and we're going to talk about how to prepare for marriage together but next week get ready for this we're going to talk about how being cool makes your relationships better no i'm kidding <laughs> lauren must be here lauren's going to be here <laughs> lauren and uh we also have a very special guest with keanu is going to be with us too and uh, i can't wait for day you to hear from lauren and she just got this amazing ability uh, to articulate words, which comes out in her songwriting too, by the way. And so, uh, uh, and most, I would say her songs are born out of uh, the idea of understanding relational conflict, relational stress, relational health, all those things. So you're about to be blessed next week when Lauren's with us. Uh, if you want to get a taste ahead of time, go to Apple Music or Spotify and you can uh, look for Lauren's song. Uh, the Probably the easiest way to find is look up the song Fern and then you'll find other songs by her. Uh, so anyway, can't wait to see you guys next week with Lauren and Keanu. It's going to be great. God bless you guys. <laughs>